Good morning, everybody. Please stand with us and let's worship together. I was buried beneath my shame. Who could carry that kind of weight? It was my tomb till I met you. Oh, I was breathing, but not alive all my failures I tried to hide it was my tomb till I met you you called my name and I ran out of that grave out of darkness into your glorious day you called my name Freedom is all that I know. The old man knew Jesus when I met you. You called my name and I ran out of that grave. Out of the
Don't have time to maintain 
Lord, from Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. While you're standing, go ahead and welcome those around you. All right, if you'll return to your seats, you may be seated. While you're returning there, let me welcome you to uh, Northside Baptist Church. We're thankful that you're here to worship with us on this beautiful Sunday. Some of you have already started school. Some of you are starting this week. It's crazy how fast the summer flies, uh, but nevertheless, here, uh, here we are. So if this is your first time with us, we're glad that you're here. Thank you for taking the time this morning uh, to come visit uh, Northside. We want to be a blessing to you any way that we can, um, to offer up prayers for you, uh, just words of encouragement to you. Any way that we can serve you, we would appreciate if you give us that opportunity. If this is your first time, there's a couple ways you can let us know that. There's a QR code that you can scan in the bulletin, or there's a card out there in the foyer uh, that you can fill out. If you would just on your way out, stop by, introduce yourself to me, um, I would greatly, greatly appreciate that. I want to read from Psalm 112 this morning. If you can see, we have the Lord's Supper elements on the table up here, so we will partake of that towards the end of our service. And so we want to, um, as we should every week, examine our hearts, prepare our hearts uh, for the preaching of God's Word. We've already sung the Scriptures. We've read the Scriptures. In a moment, we're going to pray the Scriptures. Uh, as I'll give a verse for us to pray, it won't be on the screen. Um, and then we're going to preach the Scriptures all to prepare us uh, to take of the bread and drink of 
the cup. But this is the word of the Lord. I read this um, middle of the week, and it just stuck with me. It's Psalm 112, verse 6. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. And then verse 7 says, He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. Verse 8, His heart is steady. He will not be afraid. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you just so thankful this morning for the hope, the promises that we have in your word. Thankful, Father, that you are an everlasting God, that you are a God who does not change. And Lord, we can come and we can trust in you. Lord, even in the midst of bad news, even in the midst of unexpected news, Father, our church has, has gone through that this week. We have a family walking through that unexpected news of losing a loved one. Father, we just want to lift up, because this is the first time that we've gathered as a, as a, as a group this size on, and together. We just want to lift up the He Stand family to you. Father, we are so thankful for, God, I'm personally thankful for Mr. Jim. Lord, he has been a, a, a faithful member here for many years Jim, Lord, everywhere you go in these three buildings, every room that you walk into, there's a reminder of Jim. Because Jim could fix about anything. He would spend a lot of time up here in between his jobs of, of working in people's homes and fixing things up. He would come and he would fix things, replace things, make things new. Lord, as we sit and stand in the sanctuary, his hands and his handiwork is all throughout. And Lord, he's, he's going to be missed. I enjoyed the conversations we would have as he would stop by the office when he was here. Father, we pray for Miss Barbara. We pray for Angela. We pray for Tani. We pray. God, I pray specifically this morning for those three grandkids, Amy and Lily and CJ. It is clear how much they love their papa. So Father, as they go throughout this week and the funeral on Friday, God, we are just praying for your strength, praying that they would turn to you and trust in you. This verse also says that his heart is steady. He will not be afraid. Father, we have many of our students who have either gone back to college, many of them going away to college for the first time or leaving to go serve in the Marines. And Father, either today or this next week or these next couple of weeks, Father, they're going to be going out on their own for the first time. We pray for them. We pray for their family. Father, we pray, as this verse says, that their heart would remain steady, that they would remain steadfast in their love for you, Jesus, that you would hold them firm, be with them in the decisions that they make, in the choices that they make, and in, in the things that happen to them. Father, may you just comfort them and strengthen them, and Lord, we pray that as a church we have prepared them well for this moment. So, Lord, may we just be excited for them and just continue to lift them up in prayers. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the hope that we have. Thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ, you died for me, for us. That you have reconciled us, Jesus, to the Father. For that is the hope that we cling to this morning. And as we continue to worship you in songs and praise, Father, may you just be lifted high, may you be glorified. We ask all this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Would you stand? Let's continue to worship together.
Tracy? Oh, all right. At this time, our younger kiddos are going to make their way to Children's Church. Our older kiddos, K through second, you're going to stay in here this morning. Everyone else, if you have your copy of God's Word, turn to Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4. It's been several weeks since we've been in Esther. We ended in chapter 3 last time, and so just a quick recap, where are we? Where are we in this story? Well, you know that Esther has been elevated to queen. She is now the queen. She's married to the king Ahasuerus. We know that a man by the name of Haman, Haman has been promoted. Um, the king promotes Haman, and Haman is responsible for this edict that is going out. Um, in essence, the edict says that all the Jews, and I remind you that Esther and Mordecai are Jews, this edict is for all Jews to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. That takes place in chapter 3. The last verse of chapter 3 says this, The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree, that is that the Jews are to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Now look at this. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. So what's going on as we come to chapter 4? Well, the king and Haman are so comfortable with this decree to have a large percentage of people destroyed that they sit down to drink. We also read there in that verse that the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. That's understandable. Some, many of the people living in Susa, right, this edict has gone out saying they are to be killed. If we tomorrow were to get an edict that many of us were to be killed, certainly that would be disturbing. We would all be confused. We would be terrified. And so that's what's going on. And then we come to chapter 4. Verse 1, and we read this, when Mordecai learned all that had been done. Now, we're going to take chapter 4, we're going to divide it into two weeks. We're going to, this morning, focus on Mordecai, the first nine verses. Then next week, we're going to begin to zero in on Esther as she takes center stage in this story. Three words that will guide us over the next two weeks. The first word we'll focus on this morning, that is dependence. Dependence. And then next week, we'll begin to look at the decision, the decision that Esther has to make. And then the last word that we'll talk about at the end of the message next week is deliverance, as they begin to look to God to deliver them. Before we get into the scripture, let me ask a question. <clears throat> how do you, how do I, how do we, how do some people that you know, how do we respond to distressing news? How do we respond in the face of grief or in the face of fear? Ian DeGuide writes, this world is not a safe home, but a hostile terrain. Because of sin, because of the fall, because of the curse, because of Satan and spiritual warfare, the world in which we live is not a safe place. It is a hostile terrain. We face disease. We face disaster. We face death. Some of you in the room know the pain of a miscarriage, the pain of divorce, the pain of unfaithfulness, the pain of unemployment, 
So how do we respond to those things? There's several different ways that we can respond. One of the ways is, um, and all of these start with the letter D. That's the theme, just D. I don't know why D, but that's the way it is. Detach. Detach. One way that we can respond in the midst of grief or fear is to detach ourselves from everybody else. We isolate. Have you ever seen that? Somebody's going through something and they just completely cut themselves off from everyone. Just isolate themselves as they're working through this grief. They want to do it privately and so they isolate. The other way that we can do this is to deny. Maybe you know people who did this. They deny the reality of the situation. They deny the seriousness of the situation. They act as, as if the doctor didn't say you have cancer, or they act as if their marriage isn't falling apart. They're just denying the reality. Another way that people respond is to do damage. They, they begin to blow up in anger. They begin to go on a rampage, whether it's at the situation, at others, at God. The reality is you've seen people do this. They get angry. They become bitter. God becomes enemy number one. God, why would you allow this to happen? They begin to target their anger upon other people. Like, they're just angry. But then there's another way that we can respond, and this is the way that we are to respond, and that is we are to depend. Dependence. In the face of grief, in the face of fear, we draw near to God. We abide in God. We depend upon God. We begin to draw strength from him. We let other people come into our lives and walk alongside of us as we grieve and as we deal with these fears. We let people speak truth into our life. So as we come to Mordecai, verse 1, Mordecai begins to learn of this decree, of this edict. He begins to respond to this. And what we realize is that Mordecai, and we're going to look at this in detail, is deeply grieved. He's deeply grieved, but he is not paralyzed by his grief or his fear. We will see that there is even hope within Mordecai as he believes that God, that deliverance will come from God. But he certainly is grieved. So how does Mordecai respond? We're going to work our way through verses 1 through 9 relatively quickly, and then we're going to circle back to kind of zero in on some of the things that Mordecai does here uh, in the opening three verses. Beginning in verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and ashes. He went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Mordecai gets word of this distressing and disturbing news, and he's mourning. And here's the reminder. This all starts because of a personal conflict between Mordecai and Haman. You remember, Mordecai doesn't bow down. Haman gets angry, and instead of taking it out on Mordecai, he takes it out on all of Mordecai's people. Now Mordecai has jeopardized the entire Jewish nation. He's probably feeling some of that, and so he's mourning. Verse 2, he went up to the entrance of the king's gate. That's Mordecai, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. He goes to the entrance. Why? Because number one, he's not allowed in the gate. If you come in this attire, sackcloth, ashes, you're not allowed in the king's gate. Why? Because the king doesn't want a bunch of mourning, miserable people inside the gate. He wants his people to be happy. 
If you're going to mourn, you stay out there. Don't come in here. So Mordecai knows he can only go so far in the sackcloth and ashes. But there's a main reason Mordecai's coming to the gate, and that's to get the attention of Esther. Because Esther, by being married to the king, by being in the palace, is cut off from Mordecai, cut off from the people. And Mordecai wants Esther's attention, and he knows he can get her attention this way. Verse 3, and in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. The people begin to imitate the actions of Mordecai. As the word begins to spread, the people begin to respond. Verse 4, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, so it works. People begin to notice. They know Mordecai and Esther are connected. They begin to see Mordecai acting in this way. Something's wrong with Mordecai. They begin to tell Esther. Now watch this. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. So Esther gets word that Mordecai, the one who's raised her, in essence, her father now, they were cousins, but he's parents died, so he's raising her. Something is obviously wrong with Mordecai, and I find it interesting that Esther doesn't stop to ask why. This isn't the way Mordecai normally acts. Why is he acting this way? She doesn't do that. For whatever reason, and some commentaries are really hard on Esther, and I'm not going to do that because the author doesn't tell us everything, she, you would think she would want to know why is he upset, but instead she sends a change of clothes. It's almost as if she's embarrassed. Like, come on, Mordecai, don't act this way. Put on a change of clothes. And I found this comment I read this week to be helpful. I won't make any comments on it. I'm just going to let it sit there and let the Spirit use it to work in your heart. The, the comment was this. Are we guilty of too quickly trying to provide answers instead of asking questions? It probably would have been wiser for Esther to say, huh, why? Is he acting this way rather than just assuming and trying to change? Sometimes we're guilty of that. We see something's wrong and we want to fix it rather than just sit there for a little bit and ask why and let people work through their grief and just to provide a shoulder to cry on. But she wants to give him a change of clothes and Mordecai's, he's not having it. He would not accept them. So verse 5, and, and now this begins this mediator, this man by the name of Hathak, going between Esther and Mordecai. And that's just playing like phone tag, or not phone, yeah, that phone, that telephone game you used to play. They would tell you something and you would pass it on. So then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and she ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So go figure out what's going on. Verse 6, Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. So Hathak goes. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him. The exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction. That he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Here's the reality. Esther, because she's so cut off from the people, has no clue of this edict. If she knew, then she would know why Mordecai was grieving and mourning. She doesn't know what's going on. Nobody's told her. 
She's cut off. So Mordecai is trying to get word to Esther to say, look, Esther, this is the deal. Our people are in jeopardy. You being a Jew, you're in jeopardy. You're here. You go tell the king, and maybe the king will show favor on us. And that's where verse 9 ends. And so what's going to happen? What will Esther do? How will this conflict be resolved? We have to come back next Sunday, and we'll look at that. right? But that's where we're leaving off. Mordecai said, Esther, we need you to go to the king, and maybe the king will show us favor. But what I want to do for the rest of our time in leading up into the Lord's Supper is I want to look at Mordecai's response. How does Mordecai respond to this disturbing and distressing news? Well, I'm going to point out a couple things. You need to understand that Mordecai's response here, what he does externally is keeping with Jewish custom. I'll point out some examples of this in a little bit, of other times in Scripture where we see God's people acting externally this way. But it's also in keeping, according to commentaries, with Persian practice. That Persians, too, would put on sackcloth and ashes. So they had seen this. So this is what Mordecai does. Mordecai, upon hearing this news, tears his clothes. Every time I think of tearing clothes, just to be honest, I think of Hulk Hogan. Y'all remember you just tore that shirt? Right, Hulk Hogan. He's just tearing his clothes. He puts on sackcloth. Bush has a really thick, uh, detailed commentary. Um, he writes, sackcloth refers to a garment of coarse cloth, of goat or camel hair, possibly a loincloth. Coarse cloth of goat or camel hair. It's not comfortable. He's grieving and he puts on this sackcloth. He, he puts on ashes. Bush writes, the ashes were usually sprinkled on one's head. You drop down a couple verses, that's just verse 1. You drop down to verse 3 and it says, he begins to fast. The Jews are fasting. Ian DeGuide in his commentary writes, in biblical times, fasting was a normal means of expressing condition for, contrition for sin, dependence upon God in the face of difficulty, whether personal or national. They would abstain from eating. He is weeping. He is lamenting. Now imagine if this morning during the invitation, somebody in response to grief or conviction were to begin to cry out, begin to tear their clothes, to begin to put on sackcloth, which was an, a key indicator that they were mourning, begin to put ashes on their head, they begin to fast and they won't eat. If we're honest, if, if somebody began to act that way, it would make us uncomfortable. Mordecai's actions here, to those of us in the West, it makes us uncomfortable. Joyce Baldwin in her commentary writes this, We in the West are so conditioned to keeping our grief private and sometimes to our peril unexpressed that we may pass off Mordecai's demonstrative and noisy lamentation as a mere melodramatic show. We all in this room grieve differently. As a pastor now of 20 plus years, I've seen a variety of ways in which people grieve. Some to where you don't even see tears, you don't even see emotion. To others where they're just crying out. I saw this firsthand Wednesday. We grieve differently. We grieve differently. 
And so this is the way Mordecai is grieving. This was custom of the Jews. Now, you and I need to understand something. All that Mordecai is doing is external. These are external things that you could see that indicate this state of mourning. But they aren't just for show. Mordecai isn't doing this just to put on a show. This is coming from the heart. And here's the reality. No matter how you grieve externally, God knows the heart. He knows whether you're putting on a show. He knows whether it's genuine, if it's real, if it's sincere. God sees the heart. Bush goes on to write in his commentary, these actions of Mordecai are appropriate for grief, for anguish, for lament and humiliation over calamity and bad news of all kinds. So he's grieving inwardly. It's being expressed outwardly. And these things that Mordecai does, we also see them in various combinations in the Scripture. So you may, some of these examples I'm going to mention here, they may be mourning and, and fasting, or they may be in sackcloth and ashes, but they're not fasting. But we see this in a combination. For example, Jacob, upon learning that his son, Joseph, is dead, though he really wasn't dead, right? Jacob begins to respond in, in a combination of these things. David, when his child is dying, is mourning externally in some of these ways. Daniel, when praying for his people, is doing a combination of these things. Ezra, when mourning over the faithlessness of the people. Nehemiah, upon learning that Jerusalem has been destroyed. The Ninevites, after hearing Jonah's sermon about God's judgment, right, responds in some of these ways. Now, there's something that's missing in chapter 4, though. There's no mention of Mordecai praying. He's in sackcloth, he's in ashes, he's weeping, he's fasting, he's lamenting, but there is no reference to his praying. Does that mean Mordecai wasn't praying? Not necessarily. Just the author doesn't include it. Could Mordecai have been depending more on Esther than on God? Possibly. We can't say definitively. The author doesn't tell us, but seems like his first reaction is to go to Esther to get her attention. Could he be depending more on Esther than on God? We don't know. But in Scripture, you often see these two things together, fasting and praying. Acts 13.2 says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Fasting and praying express, here's the word, our dependence upon God. We're dependent upon God. We need to be a people who fast and who pray because we need to be a people who are dependent upon God. Fasting is something that I think as the years have gone by, it becomes less and less common in many Christians' lives. And unfortunately, maybe we can even say that about prayer. That we don't fast and we pray less than we ought. But we ought to be a people who are praying and who are fasting. 
who are intentionally abstaining from a meal or a couple meals or abstaining from our phones or abstaining from whatever it is that maybe is taking our attention off of God or whatever it is that maybe we're putting our hope in more than God. I found this quote to be very helpful about fasting. John Piper says, the root of Christian fasting is the hunger of homesickness for God. Like, why do we fast? Why did they fast? Why do we abstain from these things? I like his language, homesickness for God. I thought that was helpful. Fasting says, we hunger for you, God, more than anything else. We can do without some things, but not without you. One author wrote, prayer is a ready weapon in the spiritual battle, and fasting helps to focus our prayer. I've often heard people say that when you fast, if you abstain from a meal, that doesn't mean you now, though, go immerse yourself in something else worldly. No, oftentimes, if you're abstaining from that meal, you would use that time to pray, to get in God's word, to seek his face, to run after him. So these acts of Mordecai and, and, and praying, important, not mentioned here, right? all of these are external, but here's the key. They're coming from the heart. And so as we close over the next five to ten minutes, I want us to think about our own heart. What should be our posture as followers of Jesus Christ? What should be our posture? Number one, it should be a posture of dependence. It should be a posture of dependence. In Scripture, we see that we are to deal with suffering. Hear me, this is so important. That we are to deal with suffering by directing our despair not away from God, but toward God. Again, do you know anybody who, in going through suffering because they did not understand the biblical picture and teaching on suffering, do you know anybody who claimed to follow Jesus until suffering came and then they became very angry and bitter towards God and cut God off and stopped following him? Rather than running from God, suffering should cause us to run to God. Listen, listen to this quote by Landon Dowd, and this was convicting. Why does it often take God's using drastic matters to get us to the point of repentance remorse, dependence, or even wanting to communicate with him. Why does it take God sometimes, because he loves us, why does it take God sometimes to use a drastic matter or a matter of discipline to bring us to the point of humbling ourselves, of repenting of our sin, of showing remorse, of depending upon the Lord, and even wanting to communicate with him? And then he writes this, and this was the part that, man, was just a blow to the gut. The Lord would not have to use drastic means if we were committed to daily means. God wouldn't have to drastically shout to wake you up if day by day by day we just did the daily things of spending time with God and his word, of praying of sharing the gospel, of loving people and loving him. If we fasted, if we just did the daily things, God would never have to use a drastic measure to wake us up. Let me ask you this question before we come to the second posture. 
Is our outward behavior evidence of our inward faith? I'm not talking about the way that you mourn, though, though we mourn as those who have hope, right? We have hope, so our grieving does look differently. But is our outward behavior evidence of our inward faith? Some of you are outwardly happy, but that's a facade. Because at this moment, you're really good at faking it. When you come into this building, you're really good at putting on a smile and pretending that everything is great in your life and everything is great with Jesus. But right now, you are drowning. And you don't want anybody to know it. You're really good at putting on this fake smile. Inwardly and outwardly, it does not line up. Some of you are outwardly unhappy. Like we just walk up to you and your disposition is one of, they don't seem very happy. When inwardly you have the joy of Christ and therefore that should flow outwardly. A lady at my previous church, I love her dearly. Part of her testimony is there was a time in her life where a sister in Christ had to speak truth to her life. She said, listen, you claim to know Jesus, you claim to follow Jesus, but you don't smile very often. You don't seem to have a lot of joy. That was just naturally her dispensation. We're all differently. Some of you are smiling all the time. Some of you don't ever smile. Maybe your upbringing, what you saw a lot of, but she had to speak truth to say, listen, you love Jesus. That ought to be evident. That doesn't mean you maybe always have a smile on your face or that you're never hurting or never grieving, but you know Jesus. So when you walk into that grocery store, when you speak to the teller at the bank, it ought to be obvious that you're not this threatening, if you don't serve me, I'm going to scream at you type of person. But you're just showing love and grace and patience as the love of Christ inwardly flows outwardly. So is what's on the inside coming out? And if not, then right, you need to, the second word, and that is repentance. The posture of every single one of us, no matter how long you've been following Jesus, ought to be one of repentance. Ought to be one of continually turning to the Lord in repentance. So let me ask you some diagnostic questions this morning. Are you mourning over your sin? When's the last time you wept over your sin? When's the last time your sin brought you to your knees and you just cried out, Lord Jesus, this is the sin I'm wrestling with and I'm confessing it and asking you to deliver me from it? Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you mourned over people who were lost and going to hell? When's the last time you hit your knees and fervently cried out for the Lord Jesus Christ to save people? Are you mourning your own need for Jesus? Are you constantly turning from sin to Jesus? Are you constantly turning from self to Jesus? Let me read from Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, and I want you to notice the very familiar language in in our verses that we've read here in Esther chapter 4. So Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 13 says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Listen to this. With fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Mordecai and the Jewish people are just doing what Joel tells them to do here. They are fasting, weeping, and mourning. 
Then listen to verse 13. And rend your hearts and not your garments. You see, ultimately the Lord isn't concerned with tearing your clothes and putting on sackcloth and ashes. That's why we don't do that as a church today. Because ultimately what the Lord is saying is he wants your heart. Rend your heart to him, not just your garments. Listen to this. Return to the Lord your God. Some of you need to hear this this morning. For he is gracious and he is merciful. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent? This is why the people of God would often do these external things because they did not know if God would turn and relent and save them. And so they came pleading, Lord, save us, deliver your people. King Ahasuerus refused to allow mourners into his gate. Anybody thankful that our King Jesus is nothing like King Ahasuerus? Our King Jesus allows the mourners and those who are grieving and those who are distressed. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Church, we need to realize the good news of the gospel speaks to every area of our life. This morning, the gospel of Jesus Christ confronts each one of us, whether we are believers or we have turned and denied Jesus. Will we express sorrow over our sin or will we reject God and live in sin? What sin do you need to repent of right now before we come to the Lord's table? What sin do you need to repent of? Will we be fully dependent on God or will we continue to trust in our ability to save ourselves? A small little book that I have that I find to be very helpful um, is called Valley of Vision. I believe, Steve, this is what you read from a lot of times before our men's breakfast. It's just, uh, it's not very long. It just lists a lot of prayers and, and devotions of the Puritans as they would offer up prayers to God. Listen to one of those, just one sentence. It says, I come to thee in the all prevailing name of Jesus with nothing of my own to plead, no works. No worthiness, no promises. Is that how you come to Jesus this morning? Do you come to the all-prevailing name of Jesus with nothing of your own to plead? You are simply saying, Jesus, I don't have the works to save myself. I don't have the worthiness to earn it. I don't have any promises that I can offer up to you. I simply come pleading the name of Jesus. Listen, as we close, Jesus invites us. He invites those of you who have given your life to Jesus. He invites you to the table this morning to remember his death, to remember his burial, to remember his resurrection from the dead for the forgiveness of your sins and mine. You and I are sinners, and we are in constant need of his forgiveness. That's why we walk in a constant state of repentance. But we also come to the table this morning to proclaim that Jesus is coming again. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in the midst of your despair, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of death, there is still hope. There's still hope. Let me close with one last verse. Psalm chapter 30. Psalm chapter 30. Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me, O Lord, be my helper. Now listen to verse 11. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing.
You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. What is God's response to our repentance? What is God's response to our dependence upon him? It says he will turn your mourning into dancing. He's loosed your sackcloth and he has clothed you with gladness. Before we take the Lord's Supper, we're going to sing together in just a moment after I pray. And we're going to sing a song that's new to us in, in this setting. We sang it last Sunday night at the church picnic. The, the, the lyrics are simple. You'll sing it multiple times. I depend on you. I depend on you. It's a simple song that is calling us, reminding us that every single day, your posture ought to be one in which you are abiding in Jesus Christ. That you daily are feasting upon him. Daily connected to Jesus. And when you're daily connected to Jesus, as I read earlier, you don't have to be afraid of bad news. Now hear me, it's coming. Because that's the life in which we live. And when it comes, you'll despair. You'll grieve. You'll mourn. But in your mourning, there is hope. And Jesus will take your mourning and he'll turn it into dancing. But your posture must be one of dependence and repentance, of sin and dependence upon him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to this final song this morning, this final opportunity to prepare our hearts to eat of the bread and to drink of the cup, Lord, it's a reminder that we don't just depend upon you every other month when we eat and drink. When we're obedient to live out your words, Jesus, of doing this in remembrance of you, that this is not even the only time that we abide in you is on a Sunday morning. Father, if that's the only time that we abide in you, then when pain and suffering comes, there is nothing of substance in our lives to sustain us. It's all a facade. There's no real hope, no real relationship with you, Jesus. But Father, if we are depending upon you, if we are confessing sin and, and turning from sin and daily leaning upon you, then God, you will sustain us through the hardest and worst of times. That you will sustain us beyond even, God, what we could imagine. And it will all be because of you and your deliverance in our life. So, Father, as we sing this song, may we just offer it up, praise to you, and may it be genuinely the desire of our heart is to depend upon you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand, and as we sing, we... I
forward at this time we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together as they come just a reminder two things one that if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ we 
invite you and welcome you to partake together with us. If you do not um, have a relationship with Jesus, then you cannot remember right, his sacrifice for you on the cross because you've never personally put your trust in that. So uh, we don't uh, want to exclude you, but we just ask that you just let that plate pass by you and you just, uh, we pray that as we're doing this, that the Spirit of God will convict your heart and you'll give your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Uh, also, just to remind you, as we pass it, the cups are double stacked. Uh, the bread is on the bottom cup and the juice is on the top, so make sure when you pull that out that you will, you're getting two cups um, with you. Pastor Gary is going to come uh, join me. Let us pray together, and then we will pass out the elements. Fathers, we come to this, this wonderful, important time, Jesus, that you, in your providence and in your sovereignty, chose to give to your bride, your church. Lord, this isn't something that we do, Father, just externally to be seen by others. Father, this isn't something we do just out of habit or go through the motions. Father, we don't believe, as some believe, that this blood actually turns into the blood of Christ as if we're sacrificing you all over again. Father, this is simply some juice and some bread. But Father, in doing this, this is a way for us to publicly say, but also privately in our hearts to say, Jesus, we fully depend upon your death, burial, and resurrection. And we need to be reminded of that every day and at times as we gather. And we also do this, Jesus, you say, until you come. So there is part of us that's heavy as we drink and eat, remembering your sacrifice, and the other part of us that is longing, Jesus, for you to come again to rescue your people, to come for your bride. So we prepare our hearts now as we eat and drink. We offer this up for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If our deacons will stand, we also ask that when you receive that you wait and we will do this together.
Jesus first would have taken the bread on that night and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Amen. Amen. Let me make just a few announcements. There's several things that we want to draw your uh, attention to, so I'm going to go through most of these quickly. Uh, we're going to pray for our schools tonight at 5.30. You just gather in here at the sanctuary, and as long as it's not raining and storming, we'll break up and disperse and go to different schools. If you can't join us tonight and you still want to pray on your way out at the welcome desk, I printed up some guides just to help you. Feel free to take uh, one of those. Uh, this Friday, August 11th at 6.30, our ladies are going to meet for breakfast for dinner. Sounds delicious. Uh, Ryan, bring me home a plate when you come, if you don't mind. Um, so ladies, you come, bring your favorite dish. You're going to talk about events for the upcoming year um, in the new Bible study on Psalms. So be part of that. NBC's Got Talent is next Sunday at 5 p.m. Uh, if you haven't signed up yet and you still want to, reach out to Tim or Cynthia. It's going to be a lot of fun. Deacon Elections, you may vote right after the service in the fellowship hall, or you can vote next week as well. Um, you see the five names in there uh, that you may vote for. Just please pray about that. Seek the Lord's guidance in that vote. Um, our new Sunday, our Sunday night schedule starts in two weeks. You have Awana and youth. There's also an announcement in there about a Bible study that David Mazin is going to be doing on Revelation. So we want you to be part of that. Just a couple other things. Um, Shortly after the service, those of you who signed up, you're interested in Casas Por Cristo, there's going to be a meeting in the education building. Brian Lucas is doing the deacon election, so if you'll just go to the education building, hang out for a minute, then he'll be over there to talk about that. And one last thing, um, this Friday at 2 p.m. is the service uh, for Mr. Jim. And so um, because of the, the graveside afterwards, we're not going to have a meal but in talking to the family, um, the visitation is from 1 to 2, and so we're just going to have some small finger food items in the fellowship hall for family or anything if they need to grab a bite to eat. So there will be a sign-up sheet out there with the information if you want to sign up for that. Let me just say a word um, before we close. Mr. Jim, you guys know Jim. He could fix about anything. Uh, the last thing that he did prior to his surgery is he replaced the faucet in the baptistry. So now instead of taking about an hour and 45 minutes to fill up the baptistry, it'll take me about 35 or 40 minutes. That was the last thing he did. Was He's always doing something, was to work on that baptistry. And so every time we fill up those waters, every time we see somebody follow the Lord Jesus Christ in baptism, I'm going to be reminded of Jim, just his love for this church and all that he did to make sure things worked and functioned properly. And so if you're able to come, 
Friday just to support the family and love on the family. I know uh, that would be greatly appreciated. Philip is a deacon of the week, so he is going to come end us with the word of prayer. So if you'll stand, let's be dismissed with prayer. What an incredible body this is when we can have such a tragedy and lift one another up and make sure that nobody wants for anything. Uh, that's something I'm just very grateful for. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the message that you've provided for us today, Lord. Uh, may we always lament for our sins. May we always lament for uh, lost people. Uh, Lord, give us a heart for those people. Give us the words to say. Give us the courage to share your word, share the gospel. Uh, be with us as we depart. Uh, keep us ever convicted and keep us ever uh, aware of our sins and ever aware of our sacrifice for you as we have just, as we have just seen uh, moments ago. Lord, bring us back together again uh, peaceably and, and stay with us until we're able to join again. In Jesus' name, amen.